Well, Miss Kimberly will take our little ones this morning, Kids Church. This morning's sermon, uh, we're going to dive into the uh, book of 2 Samuel. Uh, and as we begin, uh, we're going to be talking about one of the oldest stories uh, known to mankind, corruption. Uh, as, as old as, as man is and as long as there have been institutions of, of uh, organization, of power and money and influence, uh, man has tried to corrupt and uh, get as much money, power, and influence as he can. And so we're going to look, we're, we are going to be looking at, uh, at some of the, uh, the ugly underbelly uh, of, of the church, of the institution of organized religion. So if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to read verses 12 through verse 36. Uh, it's going to be a fairly lengthy passage, uh, so just, just stay with me this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through verse 36. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And the custom of the priest with the people when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it in the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did this in Shiloh and all of the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say, to the man who was sacrificed, and give the priest the meat, the meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. And if the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire. Then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. His mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give to you children from this woman in the place, in the place of the one she dedicated to the Lord. And they went to their own home, and the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meetings. And he said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear from the, Lord, from the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they will not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel was growing in the stature and in favor with both the Lord and with men. And then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt? in bondage to Pharaoh's house? And did I not choose them 
from all of the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your fathers all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick my sacrifice at my kick at my sacrifice and at my offerings, which I have commanded in my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house, and you will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all that I do, in spite of all that I do good for Israel. And an old man will not be in your house forever, yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar that is in your eyes, that your eyes may fail from weeping and your soul may grieve. And all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. And this will be the sign to you that shall come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them shall die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house and he will walk before my anointed always. And it shall come about that everyone who is left in your house shall come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please, assign me to one of the priest's office so that I may eat a piece of bread. Let's pray. God, as we read this very troubling, very difficult passage, Lord, may we see your grace. May we see your hand. May we see your goodness. Lord, it is easy to point fingers. God, may we see ourselves in this passage. Lord, may you speak to us this morning through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My prayer today is that you will see hope from hopelessness. And you will see hope out of a hopeless, dark, disturbing time. When we look at this passage, it's hard for us to comprehend the immorality and the thievery that was going on. And we're going we're gonna to get into the text in just a few moments, but I want to uh, ask uh, a very, very simple question. Does anybody have any recollection of, of any famous pastor, preacher who's ever made a mistake or fallen from grace? Anybody? Has anybody ever heard of, of, of maybe somebody who was really, really famous? You know, maybe a televangelist, maybe a preacher, maybe, maybe he had a large ministry and, and he was engaged in scandalous affairs. I sent, uh, I emailed Chris a handful of pictures. Why don't you put the first one up, Chris? Does anybody remember who this guy is? Jim Baker. Jim and Tammy Baker. Jim and Tammy Baker uh, uh, had an international ministry. They were unbelievably popular. They were on television. They had millions and millions of dollars coming into their ministry. And then it, it came out that, that they were... 
They were improperly using the funds that they had been given to line their own pockets. And in fact, Jim Baker had paid off a woman who had paid her $1.5 million to not go to the public, not go to the media, uh, and communicate uh, and tell them about the, uh, the sexual affair that they had had. The next guy that we have up here, uh, I think we all uh, recognize Mr. Jimmy Swaggart. Uh, had an international ministry on Blue Bonnet. In fact, he owned all of the land on and around Blue Bonnet for, and, and he had purchased it to build his ministry and to build his college. Uh, and, and he was bringing in millions, he was, he was reaching millions of people for, for the Lord and doing great and mighty things for the kingdom of God. And then he gets caught with a prostitute. Not once, but twice. In the next picture, it's a guy by the name of, does anybody recognize this guy? Robert Tilton. Oh yeah, I remember that guy. Robert Tilton was found that he would he would have his television show and and he would he would say, you know, send me send me your money and 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 we'll pray for you and the more money you send, the more the more we can guarantee that that your prayers will be answered and he was taking advantage of people and they were sending him millions and millions of dollars only to find out that he was using the money not not for ministry, but he was using the money to buy himself jets and property and and affluence many of you may not recognize this guy pastor ted haggard ted haggard was a televangelist who was thriving in the early 90s preaching conservative biblical teaching only to find out that he had been having a homosexual affair and was addicted to methamphetamines, purchasing drugs. I bring these guys up not to point fingers, not at all, but to demonstrate that godly people, and I, I believe, I believe that when Robert Tilton and Jim Baker and Ted Haggard and Jimmy Swaggart. I believe that whenever they began their ministry, they didn't begin their ministry saying, I will start this ministry and I will line my own pockets and I'll commit uh, adultery and immorality and engage in, in all of these immoral acts. I don't believe that that was the heart when they began. I believe that, that all of these men began their ministry striving to reach the lost and to impact the kingdom of God. But the lusts of this world and the desires of this world encapsulate us. But I want to point out, Robert Tilton, Jimmy Swaggart, these men, this isn't new. This is not something that is this, this new phenomenon that, that there's all these religious leaders and there's all these these church leaders that all of a sudden are, are committing these immoral acts and, and are, are becoming or besmirching the name of, of Christ and, and are some way that, that, that this is a new phenomenon. 
Look at the text in Samuel. Phineas and Hophni. These were priests of God. These were the high priest was Eli. These were their sons. Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phineas, and they were they were priests in the tabernacle. There is one high priest, Eli. His one of his sons was in line to be the next high priest. And it was going to be one of these guys. And look, I want us to see what they are doing. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 2, what they're doing is they are sending their servants into, into peasants' homes. And as they're preparing their offering, he says, go and get for me more meat. Now, what these lay persons have done in order to be obedient to the word of god is they have taken their best animal their most unblemished animal and they have sacrificed it they have taken their most precious thing that they have and they've sacrificed it as an offering of worship to god and the book of leviticus has already allocated a certain amount for the priests so it's not like hophni and 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 phineas are going hungry they're already allowed a whole leg quarter. They're already allowed a whole breast. They are already given the best portions of the offering. And they say, no, we want more. Go into the cobbler's house. Go into the blacksmith's house. Go into the, the farmer's house and take his meat. And be sure you bring me the good, be sure you bring me the good stuff. And then, not only would they steal from God's people, but the scripture tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 2 that, that they would say, look at, look at verse 16, verse 15 and 16. And they would also say, before they burned the fat, the priest servant would come and say to me, give me the raw meat, not just the cooked meat, give me the raw meat. And they would say, but... but it is said, verse 16, if a man said to him, they must surely burn the fat and first take as much as you desire. Now, scripture clearly, clearly points out in Leviticus that the fat is to be burned as an offering to the Lord. And Phineas and Eli, or Phineas and Hophni said, no, go get me the raw meat. We're not going to burn this meat. We're not going to burn this. We're going to not only steal from God's people, but we're going to steal from the Lord. And if you look down in chapter 2, verse 22, Eli was very old and he heard, that all of, he heard of all that his sons were doing to Israel and how they lay with the women who served in the doorway of the tent of meeting. Not only were they stealing from God's people, not only were they stealing from God, but they were abusing their power, their influence, their position for sex not any different nothing new jimmy swaggart robert tilton jim baker it's nothing new i want to point out something very we'll take a a, a tangent if you'll allow me god gives here in 1 Samuel chapter 2, a sentence of death to Hophni and Phinehas. 
one of the things that Hophni and Phinehas did was they stole from God. They did not give to God what was due him. If you go to the book of Acts, there's a story of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira were very wealthy men, women, a very wealthy couple. They had given a great deal amount of, to the church, yet they stole, they lied to the Holy Spirit, they stole from God, and there was pronounced to them a sentence of death. They dropped dead. God gives us clear commandments in his word that our responsibility as the people of God is to give to him the first fruits. Is to give to him our best. It is often our practice in the church to give to God what is left over. To give to God what is there at the end of the paycheck. To give to God what is there at the end of the month. I want to point out clearly that when that happens, bad things end up happening for God's people. God calls us to give to Him first. And when we give to God first, what did Hannah do? She gave to God her first. She gave to God Samuel. And what was she blessed with? Five other children. When we give to God first, His gifts and His blessings far outweigh what we ever give to God. But when we withhold from God, when we steal from God, when we steal from God's people, when we, when we try and give God left over, let's look at what happens to, to, to Hophni and Phinehas. The judgment of God falls upon us. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if you don't give to God first that He's going to kill you. I mean, God's Word may say that. God gives a clear commandment to his church, to his people, to give to God first. Whenever 1 Corinthians chapter 9, whenever Paul gives the exhortation of the church, uh, the, the, the church at Philippi that, that gave, what he says is they gave of themselves first. They gave of themselves first. That's just an a addendum for you there. May you be sure and test your heart when it comes to giving to the Lord? Are you giving to God of your first fruits, or are you giving to Him what's left over? All right, now let's go back to, to Hophni and Phineas and Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker and Robert Tilton and Ted Haggard, and it's easy for us to look at them and say, how could you do such a thing? How could you rob from God's people? How could you steal from God? How could you commit these immoral, indecent acts? All in the name of all in the name of God, all in the name of the church, all in the name of God's people. It's easy for us to look and to point fingers. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says that the heart, the heart is more deceitful than all else. It's desperately sick. Who can know it? It's easy for us to look at Robert Tilton and say, How could you do this? It's easy for us to look at Jimmy Swagger and say, you had everything, how could you do this? But Jeremiah said, the heart is desperately sick. Who can know it? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Paul said, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man, and God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with every temptation provides a way of escape so that you will be able to endure. 
Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. I want us to see Paul's exhortation. He says, if you think you stand, if you think you're above temptation, that you're above failure, you need to be careful because you're going to fail. You're going to fall. Pride goeth before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. And then he says in verse 13, God will always give you a way of escape. And then he says in verse 14, the way of escape is to run, to flee idolatry. Don't stand there and think, I am too pious, I am too too obedient, I am too spiritual, I can stand against the wiles of the enemy. No, Paul's exhortation is to run, get away from immorality, get away from temptation, because if you stand, you will eventually fall. James chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 says, Don't be deceived. God is not the one who is tempting us. It says, Let no one say... When he is tempted, that I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But look at this next passage. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by what? His own lusts. I look at Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart and Ted Haggard and Robert Tilton. And my heart is but by the grace of God, there go I. It is not, look at what they've done, how could they do that? It is God, by your grace, may you keep me. God, by your grace, may you protect me, not from the wiles of the enemy, but from myself. May you protect me from my deceitfully wicked heart. God, by your grace, may you surround me with people who love me and care for me and will keep me accountable. God, by your grace and by your mercy, where you, will you give me your Holy Spirit to guide me and protect me, to protect me from myself? It's easy for us to throw stones, but I want, us to remind, I want to remind us of Jesus' statement in the Sermon on the Mount. Brother, Remove the plank out of your own eye so that you will be clear, so that you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I want to point out, I, I, I want to emphasize this morning, I'm not throwing, I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at these men who have been compromised morally. But I'm saying let us look at them in light of the scripture in light of the story and the narrative of Hophni and Phinehas and say, but by the grace of God, there go I. Church, let us be honest with ourselves. Let us be honest with the deceitfulness and the wickedness that is within ourselves and let us be cautious. But by the grace of God, there go I. We must be careful not to place too much loyalty and reverence to people because man will always fail you. I can promise you, church, if you elevate me above Christ, I will fail ten times out of ten. I will let you down. I will make mistakes. I will fail you. I don't care how pious, how obedient, how devout a believer is, he is going to fail because he's a man. We must be careful not to elevate man above God. That's idolatry. 
from the outside. Let's go back to the text. From the outside, looking at what is going on in Israel, it is a dark, hopeless time. Imagine yourself a farmer in Israel. You're barely scraping by, looking to God for providence, looking to God for blessings, looking to God for grace, and the the representative of God comes into your house and steals you blind. And then you go to worship in the tabernacle, and you go to present your offerings, and then not only does he steal from you, you you witness him stealing from God, and you witness him using his, his position of authority and influence to to abuse and take advantage of these women. And you're you're looking around and you're saying it's hopeless. God, where is your providence? Where is your grace? Where is your mercy? Look at what is happening. Look at what your representatives are doing. God, what is going on? How can there be any hope? That's the situation in Israel. Yet, In the backdrop of that hopelessness, I want us to see the text. From the outside, it looks like God has turned His back on His people. That immorality and sin is permeating every aspect of the church, every aspect of Judaism. Yet God is quietly, silently at work. The text keeps whispering. But look at Samuel. Phineas and Hophni are worthless men. But look at Samuel. Phineas and Hophni are immoral men. But look at Samuel. If you're not careful, you'll skip right by it. Samuel chapter 2, verse 11. Samuel chapter 2, verse 11. Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah. But the boy, Samuel, ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. And then we read verses 12 through 17, and we see the immorality of Hophni and Phinehas. And then we see verse 18 through 21. Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy. Verse 21, then Samuel grew before the Lord. Then we see verse 22 through verse 35. In 36, and we see the judgment of God being, being communicated to Eli and saying that I am going to cut off you and your people and your family from the house of Israel. And then you get to chapter 3, verse 1, and you say this, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord. It's easy to see this narrative that has 35, 36 verses and the vast majority of them are about immorality and the corruption and the, the wickedness that's going on. And yet, there are four verses that say, but remember Samuel. But remember Samuel. But remember Samuel. God is always providing for the next moment, even in the darkest moment. I'll tell you a story about a bomber flying over Berlin at the end of World War II. As he's flying over Berlin on a bombing mission, he's taking anti-aircraft fire from Nazi Germany, and he knows that he's been hit 
In fact, his fuel tank was hit with a shell of anti-aircraft, anti-aircraft ammunition. But for whatever reason, that shell did not explode. And he lands safely. While he's on the ground, he goes to the mechanic and he said, hey, can you, can you pull that shell out of the fuel tank? I'd like it for a souvenir. And so he said, which one? He said, what do you mean which one? He said, well, there were 12 shells that were found in your fuel tank. He said, 12? He said, yeah, every one of them were empty. Every one of them did not have a charge in them except one. It had a note. Note was written in check, so they couldn't, they couldn't interpret it. They finally found someone in the intelligence community that can interpret it, and it said this. It said, this is what we can do for you now. It was a Czech family that had been forced to work in a Nazi munitions camp. They couldn't assassinate Hitler. They couldn't revolt against Nazi Germany. But what they could do was they could forget to arm some of the shells. Make no mistake about it, even in the darkest of times, God is at work. Even in the deepest, darkest moments in Israel's history, God said, but remember Samuel. God's movement isn't always noisy. God's movement isn't always loud. Sometimes God speaks through the silence. Sometimes God speaks through insignificant things. As King Artaxerxes was looking for a woman that he could have one night, God allowed his favor to rest upon a beautiful young woman named Esther. And God's movement was through the small, insignificant noticing of a king who recognized a beautiful young woman. For God has raised you up for such a time as this. The favor of God rested upon Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and the favor of God rested upon them, and although they ate nothing but fruits and vegetables, they grew, and the, they grew in stature, and they, they became more handsome and more rugged than all the other men, all the other young men in the king's court. The favor of God rested upon them. Insignificant, small moments in the midst of the deepest, darkest aspects of hopelessness, God shows up, but he does so oftentimes in very small, insignificant moments that if you're not looking for them, you miss them. One of the darkest days in the history of the world was Good Friday. The Messiah, the Anointed One, had been crucified. Go with me, if you will, to the book of John. I want you to see the small, insignificant movement of God. John chapter 18. John chapter 18. 
I'm sorry, verse 19. Verses 38 through 42. After these things, these things being Jesus crucified on the cross, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he may take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. He came therefore and took his body away, and Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him at night, bringing him a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus, they bound him in linen wrappings with spices and the burial customs of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. We're reading this insignificant. Doesn't doesn't speak to us, this is the providence of God. Yet, let us rewind for just a moment. What is customary for customary to happen to bodies after crucifixion? They're to be taken down from the cross and they're to be burned. And they're to be, be disposed of. A criminal is not given a proper burial. A criminal, is the, his, his body is burned, it's desecrated. Yet, Jesus, some... Several years ago, he was visited by a man named Nicodemus at night, and Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, unless the man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the Holy Spirit began to work in the heart and the life of Nicodemus. And then there's a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea who hears the story, hears the narrative of Christ, sees the miracles of Jesus, hears the teachings of Jesus, places his faith and trust in Jesus, yet, yet doesn't come and publicly identify himself with Jesus because he is scared, scared for his life. Yet, this man goes to Pilate and says, can I have his body? Probably had to pay Pilate a certain amount of money. says, look, how much is it going to cost me to get this, this criminal's body? Pilate gives Joseph of Arimathea the body. And this seems insignificant at the time. They anoint the body. They, bear, they wrap it in linen cloths and they lay it in the tomb. But, the significance of the tomb will be demonstrated on Sunday morning. When the women show up, they don't go to a mass grave to anoint ashes. They go to a tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. And they walk in and the tomb is empty. In the deepest, darkest moments, God works through the small evidences of grace. Through small, insignificant moments, in the deepest, darkest period of hopelessness in your life, I want to tell you right now that God is working. He is at work. And you say, but preacher, look at what Hophni is doing. Look at what Phineas is doing. They are stealing from us. They are stealing from God. They are raping our women. They are, there is immorality and thievery and, and unethical things. It is, it is hopeless. I'm telling you, Samuel. Look at Samuel. Say, but he's just a boy. It doesn't matter. But look at Samuel. He has no power. He has no influence. He has nothing to offer us. But look 
at Samuel. It does not matter what it appears to our eyes. The Scripture tells us that God sees not as man sees. That God's ways are not like our ways. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. We must stop trying to see the world through our eyes and trust that God is in control and that God is providential and that God is working in ways that we can't even understand. If you're a farmer who's experienced the heartbreak of having being robbed and seeing your, your, your offering stolen right before you, do you have any hope? Do you even know about a boy named Samuel serving under Eli? No. You're completely ignorant. But that doesn't mean that God is not moving. That doesn't mean that God is not at work, church. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean that it's not there. God is working in every moment, always. This morning, I want to challenge you to see hope in the hopelessness. Maybe this morning your hopelessness is your own sin. Maybe your hopelessness is the reality that you're aware of your own heart. And if that's the case, I want to tell you the greatest news that there ever is. That in the midst of our sin, Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. The Bible tells us in Romans 5, 8 that God demonstrates His great love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. Let's pray. God, there are those here this morning who are hopeless. They're looking around and they see nothing but immorality. They see nothing but thievery. Phineas and Hophni have robbed them of everything that they know. And yet through Your Word, You have reminded them but look at Samuel. You have reminded them that you have not forgotten them. You have reminded them that you are faithful and that you provide hope for the hopeless. That you are a father to the fatherless. God, for those that are here this morning without hope, may you send your Holy Spirit to give them comfort, to remind them that you are still moving in their lives. God, for those that's hopelessness is, is bound in their own sin, may you speak to their hearts. May they come to Jesus. May they turn from their sin. May they repent of their sin. And may they cry out for forgiveness. God, today, may we see your hope in the person of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray.